can any of you believe that we're almost at the end of August? No, doesn't make sense to me. But here we are, nearly the end of August, and rejoicing in the Lord, and uh, rejoicing in the rain, and rejoicing that the time for the heat is going to quickly come to start to subside a little bit, huh? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise and thank you for your great and glorious mercies upon us individually and upon this uh, small band of your body, that you are so faithful to keep us, that you keep us in health, that you strengthen us, that you heal those that are sick, that you grant wisdom for our direction, that your eye is upon us just as the eye, your eye is upon each sparrow. And Lord, we do know that you care for us and that you will never leave us or forsake us and that your plan is set out before us as a world and a nation for the, for the one day coming of uh, the Son again to gather his people. So we do praise you, Lord, and uh, look for your coming. And then, Father, we thank you for uh, Pastor Frank and Caroline, that they have been restored in their vacation and that they're back with us today. We ask your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. An attitude of gratitude. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Colossians 3.15. Thankfulness isn't our usual response when something goes wrong. We have a hundred things that could go wrong for us to which we'd be thankful, but let one bad thing happen and then we'll think about it. But the Bible says, in everything give thanks. No matter what happens, we are to give thanks. Cultivate a spirit of thanksgiving in your life. Thank God for every blessing he gives you. Thank Christ for what he has done for you. And even when things go wrong, thank him that things aren't worse and you are still in his hands. Having an attitude of thankfulness in all of life's circumstances will help you react as old Matthew Henry did when he was mugged. He wrote in his diary, let me first be thankful because I was never robbed for. Two, and although they took my purse, they didn't take my life. Three, because they took my all, but it wasn't much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. I wonder if we could be that thankful. The hope for today, if we could have eyes that recognize God's gifts, would we see the blessings far outweigh our burdens? Take time, write down every gift that today holds from sunrise to sunset. I will call upon the Lord.
Today's Old Testament reading is Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. It's good to praise the Lord. Amen. If you'd like to stand, we can do the Lord's Prayer together. Or if you'd like to sit, we'll do it anyway. <laughs> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Open my eyes. Oopsie. Uh-oh. Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 1, and then verses 7 through 14. 
One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of the leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. When Jesus, Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to the, his host, when you put in a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your guests, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, of the righteous God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. So we'll, if you'd like to join us in the responsive reading. O oh God of steadfast love at the wedding in Cana, your son turned, turned water into wine, delighting all who were there. Transform our hearts by your spirit that we may use our varied gifts to show forth the light of your love as one body in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, creator of the universe, owner of everything. Lord, we give gifts today. You tell us to give back, that you have been plentiful to us, and that we, should, we need to be be cheerfully give that we may we may help others come to know you the greatest joy in the world the joy of being part of your family yes. so lord we ask that you help us make the decisions wisely on how to spend this money and we ask or spend these and use these gifts and lord um, we ask you for for your guidance in doing so this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you like to rise for the doxology?
All right, this morning uh, I'd like to do um, John chapter 1, 1 through 4. And uh, <laughs> Wayne was praying, prayed about uh, Christ as a creator, and that's, we're going to talk, that'll be part of it, but uh, this is a wonderful prologue to the Gospel of John. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. That's where we get the creative part. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And him was life, and that life was the light of men. Um, when I come to a passage like this, I always um, I feel, and in, in same kind of thing in Colossians chapter 1, um, 15 through 20, the beautiful you know, Christological statements. This is one of those. And I always feel like uh, I, the, somebody handed me a paint, the, the Mona Lisa, not just a facsimile of it, but the Mona Lisa itself, and I'm holding it, you know, I'm, I'm holding this thing that is beautiful and ancient, and that's the way I feel about this passage, and really about the whole Bible, uh, but especially when I get to these Christ, what are called Christological passages, or just a condensed statement of who Jesus is, or like I'm standing in the Sistine Chapel, um, how many of you have been to the Sistine Chapel? We went, we went, we were going to go to it, but um, it was closed when, when we were there, and so we never did get to the Sistine Chapel, but I understand it's absolutely beautiful. But the idea is that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's something so ancient and beautiful about the Word of God, and these passages focus in on just uh, the, the incredible thing that God has given us in His Word. Daniel 7, 21, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the ancient of days came. I love that phrase, the ancient of days. Uh, it, just, it just conjures up all kinds of stuff of, you know, this, this deep, deep well that there is in the word of God, the ancient of days, and, and how God is the one who has, is the ancient of days with ancient paths so that we can walk and be saved and walk in security and safety because we're walking on those beautiful ancient paths that God has set out. So the word of God is from eternity. If there's anything, I've been preaching now for, preaching, teaching for close to 50 years. And if there's anything that I've discovered in that almost 50 years of teaching the word, is that it is infinite. It is infinitely deep. And the deeper you get into it, the more you realize um, that it, there's, there's so much more. You, you, you know, you just, uh, you, you uncover a little piece of it, and then, and then there's, a whole, there's a whole other depth to it. Uh, it's just incredible how infinitely deep is the Word of God. And John's Gospel, in particular, combines, um, when, when I was in seminary, um, I went to, we went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in, up in north of Boston, and we got there in the summer, and I took Greek that first summer, two semesters of Greek, uh, to get that out of the way, you know. Uh, I mean, actually what I found was that I absolutely loved it, and, uh, you know, <clears throat> but... Um, but what we did in that Greek class, he was a new professor. He just, it was his first time he'd ever he'd, he'd taught. He had just gotten his Ph.D., and he was starting, uh, starting to teach at Gordon-Conwell. 
Um, and we started the first day of class reading the Gospel of John. Okay? Uh, and we read, you know, <clears throat> probably the first verse, the first day of class. Okay? And the reason is that this is simple language, and yet it is so incredibly profound. Um, it, it's the easiest Greek is in the Gospel of John. Uh, they always start, you know, new, new uh, seminary students on the Gospel of John because it's simple language, and yet it's probably the most profound uh, book that there is. It just has incredible depth to it. So it is, it is simple and yet complex and deep and profound and beautiful. So the theme today is that Christ changes everything if we have a right understanding of who he is. That's who he is. And there's four things we need to know about Jesus. He's eternal, he's divine, he's the agent of creation, he's life itself. And we're going to pick those up um, in, in order. So the first thing is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this sense here, and this word that's used is the word logos, and the sense is um, that it is continuous. Um, the word was being with God, and the actual, the Greek, is an imperfect. It's in the imperfect tense. You don't see a lot of that, uh, but, it, but what it means is uh, there's the aorist tense in the Greek. Okay, you, you can, you know, there's no quiz on this, but there's the aorist tense, and that is a one event, but then there's the imperfect tense, past tense, and that is something that, that is always in progress. It's continuous. So, so in the beginning was being the Word, and the Word was being with God, and the Word was being God. It, it's continuous. It never ends. Started sometime in the past, but it continues forever. And it, well, it didn't start sometime in the past. It, it, it always was and it always will be. I, probably a better way to put it. So, the book of Genesis then in the Hebrew is called In the Beginning. Okay? And so John is writing about a new beginning, a new creation. So he uses words. And what's, what's interesting is that this in the beginning, in the Greek, goes back to the Septuagint. Okay, do you know what the Septuagint is? Robert, tell us what Septuagint is. Okay, at her. It's the uh, book that was written um, in the Greek, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, provided sometime prior to the, the, actually the Torah, written in Greek. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's called the, 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 it's, the symbols for it are LXX, which means 70, and it was a translation about in the third, third century B.C., before Christ, so that actually the Bible that Jesus probably used was the, was the Septuagint, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the quotes and so on that we see in the Bible are from the Septuagint because they were, many were at that point speaking Greek rather than Hebrew. Uh, probably reading Hebrew, but more speaking Greek. Um, so before anything came into being, and the Septuagint has exactly the same words as Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. John 1, 1 is exactly the same word, anarchy, in the beginning, okay? Um, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And so it's exactly the same languages. So in the beginning then, um, and so there's all these, uh, all these uh, similarities then with the first part of Genesis. And we studied Genesis and looked at that, and, and this goes back to, and John is trying to pull us back into and look at Genesis and say, here, you know, that's the creation. Here's the new creation. God is doing something new. He's writing a new beginning, a new creation, so to speak. So he uses words to recall the first creation. Before anything came into being, there was the word. He was before all else. That's who he is. And one commentator says this, that there's two meanings to the phrase, in the beginning. And the first is, in the beginning of history. Okay, so you go back historically, and in the beginning was the word. So in, in going way back to the beginning of history, before time began, so it's a temporal kind of thing, Jesus was and is. He, he always is. There never was a time when he was not. And the second connotation is that he is the root of the universe. Um, so it's both a temporal thing, but it's also saying that Jesus is the root of everything that is. And the same verb, okay. And then Proverbs 8, beginning in verse 22, um, the writer of Proverbs then, Solomon, says that, um, talks about wisdom, okay? And it says this, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. Now think, wisdom, think of the word and think of Jesus, okay? The same. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth or its field or any of the dust of the world, I was there when he set the heavens in place. Wow. When he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely, the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was the craftsman by his side. Jesus, there with God in the beginning, before the beginning, eternally, I, he was the craftsman at his side. It was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence. So that's who Jesus is. With the Father, uh, before the beginning of time, eternal, in the beginning. And then it says, was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I've always wondered, until I was doing the research for this particular sermon, I always wondered, why did God use the word, Word? Uh, in the beginning was the Word. Why didn't he just say, in the beginning was Jesus? I mean, okay, that would be a whole lot simpler because that's what he's talking about. It's very clear in verse 14 that he's talking about Jesus. So why didn't he use the word Jesus? Well, um, and this commentary that I read uh, really opened my eyes to this. And let me share this with, with you. The, uh, what he was doing was conjuring, using a term which had great meaning both to the Greeks and to the Jews. 
So he was writing, you know, he's writing to both the Greeks and to the Jews, and he used a word that would conjure up the, the right kind of image that he wanted in both of those contexts. So the word logos in, the, in Greek and among the Greeks and secular Greeks uh, denoted a thought or reason, the world soul, the soul of the universe, or the, uh, the all-pervading principle, the rational principle of the universe. Okay, so to the Greek then, when he read this word, logos, he was thinking this all-pervading principle, this, this thing that, that runs everything. But it's, it's not personal, but it's an all-pervading force or, or, uh, uh, or principle that pervades everything that is. Did I make that clear? <laughs> I've seen some faces look like, uh, okay, buddy, <laughs> where'd you go here? <laughs> or it's the stabilizing, the directing principle of the universe. Okay? So, but as I said, the Greeks didn't think of the Logos as personal. To them, it's just a force. Uh, like, kind of like, you know, we have today, the force be with you. Okay, it's not saying that there's a God, it's just saying there's some kind of force out there, and may the force be with you. And, um, but it doesn't, it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't do much for you in terms of person. So, the Greeks saw it as a force that originated and permeated and directed all things, okay? But then the Jews, the Jews saw it as personal, that there is this personal God. And so throughout the Old Testament, the word of the Lord is used as an effective agent for the accomplishing of the divine will. So it says in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to being. He commanded and it stood firm. So we're talking about a person. All right? So the, so the Jews, when they read this word, they thought a person. It's personal. But the Lord foils the plans of the nation. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his hearts through all generations. So, so the Greeks thought of this organizing, permeating principle of the universe. The Jew said, this is God. And so, and so John uses a term, logos, which brings both of those thoughts together. So that when the Jew, when the Greek, you know, the secular Greek read it, he got something out of that. When the Jew read it, he got something out of that. And, and, and John does that all through his gospel. He uses these, these words with double meaning that can, um, <clears throat> that are rather profound. But John's thought is his own, okay? And this is quoting uh, this, uh, this commentator. He uses a term which would be full of meaning to men, whatever their background. But whatever their background, they would not find John's thought identical with their own. His idea of the Logos is essentially new. William Temple summarizes this meaning when he says this. The Logos, he says, alike for Jew and Gentile, represents the ruling fact of the universe and represents the, that fact as the self-expression of God. So both the ruling principle of the earth, of the universe, but also personal, a personal God. The Greek will think of the rational principle 
of which all natural laws are particular expressions, both will agree that this logos is the starting point of all things. All right, so that's why John uses this word logos, or word, uh, to, because it, it, it brings together both secular understanding and Jewish understanding. Okay, then it goes on. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And we talked about when we did the, um, the Colossians, uh, we talked about the preexistence of Jesus. Okay, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And we talked then at that time that, you know, they have not been able to, to come up with what holds the universe together. Why does the atom not just fly apart? Well, it, it's Jesus. Jesus is there. Jesus holds everything together, he, and he always was. He preexisted with God from the beginning, before the beginning of time, and he, is, he was being with God, and he is being with God now. And through him, all things hold together. You take Jesus out of the universe, and it all collapses. So you say, well, you know, how can, how can God bring a new heaven or a new earth? Okay, well, he brought the first one, <laughs> and he holds the first one together. So he's going to, one day, there's going to be a new heaven or a new earth. We don't know when that is, but we know who's going to do it. And we know that Jesus holds it all together. Without him, everything is, is chaos. And with him, everything moves from chaos to order. Just ask my wife. <laughs> she, she loves order. She likes to get everything in order in the house. And so, uh, <laughs> so, so Jesus, there never was a time when the word was not. There never was a thing which did not depend on him for its very existence. That's who Jesus is. Furthermore, Christ is divine. The word was God. And we, you know, you would not know from just reading these passage that necessarily that this applied to Christ. But you look down at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Okay? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So they were clear there that we're talking about Jesus Christ. Christ is then the incarnation of God, God himself. And the, the incredible thing about Christmas is not that a little baby was born and, and so on. It's that God himself was born. You know, I mean, he was born in human flesh. He became incarnate. The God, the invisible God, the God who created all things, the God who permeates all things, took on human flesh. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? And not only did he take on all flesh, but he took on all flesh for the very purpose of dying for our sins. I mean, well, does it get any better than that? But Philippians 2.6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
That's our Jesus. Our Jesus who spoke it all into existence says all things were created by him. Not just something. Everything that there is was created by Jesus. God the Father is the, is the source. Jesus as the agent of creation. Through whom all things, through Christ, everything came into being. Now, you know, I, we spent a lot of time, and we have spent a lot of time in, in Turkey, in a Muslim country, and, and they believe that Jesus was a great prophet, one of the greatest prophets. You know, uh, a lot of times we'll talk to Turks, you know, we'll mention the word Jesus. Oh, yeah, he's a great prophet. We, we you know, and, you know, we regard Jesus as a great prophet. Why don't you regard Muhammad as a great prophet? That's what we hear a lot of times. You know, we, we honor your God. Why don't you honor our, you know, not God, because nowhere does it say that Muhammad is a God, but our, you know, the one who originated Islam, why don't you honor him the way that we honor Jesus? Well, um, usually we try to skirt around that, because <laughs> that's, that's not a good starting place to start a discussion. But, uh, but anyway, they regard Jesus as a great prophet, but the, the sticking point is always, he's not the son of God. And the Mormons do the same thing. Um, you know, he's, it's okay, he's a great prophet and so on, but he's not God himself, and that's the sticking point. And I, I think this first verse of John 1 is one of the sticking places. Am I not right? I, I haven't done a lot of work in Mormonism, but uh, anyway. Um, okay, so, and so it says, he was with the Father in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So there's two things about this. Number one is that Jesus was distinct from the Father. And the whole uh, thing of the Trinity is that there are three persons, three separate persons, but one identity, one uh, in uh, homoousios in the, in, the, uh, in the Latin. He is of one essence. Um, he is one with the Father. There's no difference. You look at Jesus, and Jesus said, uh, you know, you look at God, you see me. If you look at me, you see God. There's, there's no difference. And so Jesus was, well, and the second thing was that Jesus was with God from the beginning. And if you remember in Exodus chapter 3, uh, beginning verse 13, and Moses was in the wilderness now, and if you remember this story, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household. Um, he, was, he was, you know, his, the, the daughter of Pharaoh, found Moses in the, in, the, in the reeds and raised her as his own. And so, and so Moses was in the lineage to become the Pharaoh of Egypt. And he killed a man uh, when he, he began to realize that he had a different calling. He killed a man and he had to flee to Midian. So he's, he's up in Midian, and he's, he's a sheep tender. You know, he's a, he's a shepherd. That's what he does. Forty years as a shepherd in the wilderness area of, of Midian. And it says in verse 13. And so he's out there shepherding his sheep, and he looks over, and there's a bush, and it's burning, but it's not burned up. And so he goes over to examine it, um, and he, you know, can't figure out what's going on. And God speaks to him out of that bush. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, 
the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Now, that's a good question, you know. Uh, who, who am I going to say sent me to? Because God told Moses, bring my people up from Egypt, bring them back to, to the promised land. So says, what's his name? Then what shall I tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Okay, now, and then in John chapter 8, verse 58, um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he makes this statement. Before Abraham was born, I am. And so he goes back to this event at the burning bush where God identifies who he is as the I am. Okay, so the I am, uh, you, you know, you want an adjective. <laughs> I am what? Uh, but there's no adjective. God is, he just is. He is the essence of everything that is. Because Jesus spoke everything into existence, and he permeates all things, and he is existent in everything, holds everything together, that the best way that we can talk of him is, I am. He is. He is lots of things, but he just is. He always existed. And it's interesting with this, uh, with this, when Jesus said this in John chapter 8, it says immediately the Jews picked up stones to stone him to death because he was blaspheming God. He was identifying himself with God, saying, I am that one. I'm the one who spoke to Moses. And of course, that's blasphemy if you don't believe in him. And then John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And it says, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. So Jesus was divine, and, and the Jews understood that, that he was saying he was not. They didn't believe it, but they understood that that's exactly what he was saying. And so it says in John 14, 9, Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, all things have been committed to, committed to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is, he always was, and he is the I am. He is God himself. He is divine. Next thing is that Jesus is the agent of creation. This is what Wayne was talking about and praying about. Through him, verse 3, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So not only did Jesus exist before the creation, before anything came into being, but out of that place of uh, of being in the beginning with God, he spoke all things into existence. Through him, he is the agent through whom all things came into being. The whole universe came into being through Christ and through Christ alone. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Okay, so what things did he create? Things in heaven and on earth. So everything that is in heaven... Christ created everything that he is on earth, he created, visible and invisible. Visible is the you know, material world that we see. Invisible is the whole spiritual world. 
everything that is invisible, he created all that, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. He created all authorities, every, everything that is all authority on earth, Christ uh, created all of that. All things, it says, were created by him and for him. So not only was Jesus the agent of creation, but everything was created for him. He is the, he is the goal of everything. Genesis chapter 1, when a new chapter of the creation occurred, it's introduced by, and God said. Okay, and so Genesis 1, <clears throat> you know, it says repeatedly, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. When God speaks, things, come, things happen. Everything comes into being. That's all he did. He just spoke, and everything came into being. Everything owes its existence to the word. Psalm 102, in the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. You know, and some, someday this whole creation is going to perish, but God is going to stand. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded. But you remain the same and your years will never end. Isn't that incredible that that's who Jesus is? Um, so if we found out that the Mona Lisa that we looked at had been painted 200 years before Leonardo da Vinci had ever been born, we'd say, well, he didn't, he didn't paint it then. Obviously, if he, if, he, you know, if he lived and died before the Mona Lisa was ever painted, we'd say, okay, it wasn't painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Okay, that's easy. So... It's really important that Jesus pre-existed before the beginning of time for him to have created everything that is. You get the connection? 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Interesting, you know, it talks about the Father from whom all things came and for whom, for whom we live. And then it says, and the Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So parallel statement that, that what God, who God is, Jesus is. He's the agent of creation. Hebrews 11, or Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. In the past, God spoke to us, to our forefathers, through the prophets at many times and in various places. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Who made the universe? Jesus. Jesus spoke it all into existence. So everything started with Jesus. Everything is going to culminate in Jesus coming back. Um, Ephesians 1.9, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So the whole purpose of the creation is that Jesus, who was the creator of all things, became the redeemer of all things so that he can become the king of all things. Let me say that again. Jesus, who created all things, became the redeemer 
to redeem all things and bring them back to God the Father. And then in the end, all things, he will be king of all things. Everything will be turned over to him so that he will reign forever. Yeah, pretty incredible, isn't it? And God loved us so much that he did that for us. Next thing is that Christ is life. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now, Christ didn't just bring life, he is life. Okay, now let me explain that. Um, John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I bring life, as if you believe in Christ and you'll get life. But he says, I am the life. I am life itself. I don't quite get that, you know, um, in terms of physics and all that. I don't, quite, I don't quite, you know, see how all that works together. But Christ is life itself. He doesn't just bring life, and if we believe on him, we'll have life. He is the very essence of life. And that's why he can say, in me you have eternal life. Because if we believe in him, he already is life. He is life itself. We believe in him. We receive that life. So in a sense, we kind of attach ourselves to him, and he is life, and so we have life itself through Jesus Christ. John 14, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the knowledge of God that the Word brings is not merely information, it's his life. The Word is creative. And the Word is alive. And that's what I love about the Word of God. You know, referring to the Bible, is that it is alive. And we read it, and we're not just reading empty words on a, on a page or even ancient words. We're reading words which are alive which come alive in us and bring life to us. And that's the message we take out into the world, isn't it? It's that you can, you can have life through Christ and only through Christ. You know, there's so many religions out there and so many different ways that people are trying to find life, but they can't find it. It doesn't go anywhere because Jesus is life. He is the source of all life. He is life itself. He doesn't merely have life. He is life. Life is not just part of his nature. He is its very essence, the very source of life. He doesn't just bring life. He is life. Genesis 2.9, The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We, we talked about that when we did Genesis, okay? So, what is that tree of life? It's Jesus. And then, Genesis 3.24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flashing sword, fla flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So then we see then, um, this in the, when the, New heaven and the new earth were created in Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life is clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. So 
bearing fruit, 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So, in, you know, when the new heaven and the new earth are created, the God and Christ are the source of light for that. And one day, this, this whole earth is going to, you know, the heavens and the earth are going to, are going to dissipate, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and at the center of that, giving light to everything, is Christ himself. Wow. That's who Jesus is. So he's the source of all light. John 5, 25, I tell you that the truth, the time is coming, and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear him will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. In Christ is all life. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. <clears throat> John 6, 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 6, 63, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. You know, they've been, there's been a lot of attempts. You hear about it every now and then. Scientists trying to create life in the, in the laboratory, okay? Somehow create life. And um, one person was, uh, who was trying to do that was Andrew Parker. He's the director of research at the National History Museum in London. And he wrote a book about the origin of life. And he said this. He said, I'm not a religious man. And I do not want religion, particularly at this time in my life, okay? He's identified himself. He's a non-believer. But what I have discovered is the most remarkable correlation between the order of events as I see them in the history of life and what Genesis says. Oh, <laughs> go figure. <laughs> There's no way the Hebrew writer of Genesis could have known that life was, light was important, that marine life was important. And so... Um, Richard Simmons makes this conclusion. So the origin of life on our planet seems inexplicable for those who live with a godless worldview. The only possible exclamation that some try to make is that life has somehow made, somehow made its way from another planet in another universe. And you see that. Every now and then, the, you know, a, a top scientist will say, well, okay, we, we can't create life. We, you know, there, we can't replicate it in the laboratory, so life must have come from another planet. And, and, but wait a minute, that takes even more faith <laughs> believing that Christ created all life and that Christ is the source of all life. The only possible, <clears throat> of course, he says, the question arises, how did life arise on that planet? <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. So you still, you still haven't answered the question. So what we're saying is that Jesus is the source of all life. He is. He always was. He pre-existed with the Father from the beginning of time. He spoke everything into existence. And he is the source of all life. Okay, so what do we do with that? Where do we go with that? Acts 4.12 says this. 
Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. All right. So there's a lot of attempts now. And people trying to find salvation, trying to find truth, trying to find meaning in something besides Christ. Looking all over the place, turning over every rock to try to figure out how, you know, how did it all begin? How did this world begin? And how do I find life? How do I, what do I do with the guilt that I feel? What do I do with the shame that I feel? Where, where do I take that? Well, you take it to the author of life, don't you? You take it to the one who created all things and spoke everything into existence and who, and who reaches out his hand for us and says, come along, I want to bless you. Josh McDowell said it this way. Jesus claimed to be God. Either his claims were false or true. If they were false, there are two alternatives. First, he knew his claims were false. Then he made a deliberate misrepresentation. Thus, he was a liar, a hypocrite, a demon, or a fool. Second, he didn't know his claims were false. He was deluded, and he just said those things. Well, then he was sincerely deluded and therefore a lunatic. So he's either, either the son of God, a liar, a lunatic, or the son of God, okay? There's, there's no, there, you, you can't get away from that. C.S. Lewis um, said this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Okay? And that's where a lot of people are. You know, he's a great, great guy. And I mean, the, the uh, Muslims constantly tell us, you know, we, we love Jesus. He was a great prophet, great teacher, a uh, great example. And they, you know, give lots of uh, claims about who, you know, about how wonderful Jesus is, but they won't accept him as God. So Lewis goes on. He says, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I love that, that quote, okay? He didn't, never intended. He, 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 he stated it plainly, and he said, okay, you, could, there, you can't just call me a teacher. You've either got to accept the whole thing, I am God, or discount it. And, of course, a lot of people discount it. Uh, but we, as Christians, we say, yes, we believe it. Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine. He's the source of life. Lewis wrote in another place, we may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any people who actually met him. So nowhere when, you know, when he preaches, they, you know, as it's recorded, they had to deal with the fact that he was calling himself God. He was divine and saying, I am. So Jesus didn't come primarily just to teach us right living. He came to save us from sin to be our Savior. And if Jesus was not divine, 
then you're stuck with who you are. All right, that's really the bottom line. If Jesus wasn't the Son of God, and he came to, to be the answer for sin, to take our sin upon him, if we don't believe he's the Son of God, we're stuck with whatever we came on earth with. Okay? And I don't know about you, but a day doesn't go by, <laughs> probably a moment doesn't go by, when I don't come face to face with my own sin, my own pride or, you know, just, I mean, the list goes on and on of the things in me that I don't like. Well, if Jesus wasn't the Son of God, then I'm stuck with that. That's as far as I can go. I will never be any more than that. I can try, I can, you know, do everything I can to try to be a, be a better person. But if Jesus is the Son of God, then he died exactly for that sin that resides within me. And I'm just assuming, assume resides within you. <laughs> if you will pardon the expression. We're all sinners and we are saved by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to take our sins upon his shoulder to give us life and to give us life more abundantly. It's no package deal. You can either accept Christ's divinity or reject him altogether. There are no split orders.
closer walk with me. Just a closer walk, just a closer walk. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, for the Word, for the explanation today of how it all ties together. And Lord, we knew it did. But it's nice to get a little deeper. And as Frank mentioned, we can keep going back to your Word, and we can go deeper and deeper and deeper and never hit bottom. We will find more and more about how you would have us be and how your son created all that we see. So we ask that we may that we may see more and be more. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen.